Well, good morning again. Hopefully you're enjoying the rain. Although it stopped, so keep praying. <laughs> All right. So last week we were able to see Samuel actually bring the Israelites to true knowledge of their sin, right? We were in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 12, and he went in and he and he got them to actually admit that the system that they had was a good one. He said, Who, whose camel have I or whose donkey have I taken? Right? Whose ox have I taken? Right? And, and if you remember back to Samuel's warning about asking for a king, he said he was going to take everything. Right? He's going to take your sons, your daughters, your land. And so he, he got them to acknowledge that in this current system, nothing was being taken. But now that they asked for a king, things were going to change. Right? And we ended uh, that chapter there with the, the ominous last two verses, uh, chapter 12, verse 24. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. I would love to tell you that today's passage was more about the first part of those two verses than the last part. But it's not. All right? and I tried to warn you last week about Saul. Hopefully you were listening and you're not too crestfallen by what we read today. But uh, Saul did not very well and we're going to start to see Saul fall apart today. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at 1 Samuel 13. I always do this. I talk and I don't turn. Let me turn. 1 Samuel 13. We're going to start in verse 1. And uh, let's see what he has to say. Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 42 years over Israel. Now Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel of which 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash, and in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. But he sent away the rest of the people, each to his tent. Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. All Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. The people were then summoned to Saul at Gilgal. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people like the sand, which is on the seashore in abundance. And they came up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth Haven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves, in thickets, in cliffs, in cellars, and in pits. And also, uh, also some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal. And all the people followed him, trembling. Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring to me the burnt offering and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. But Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, Because I, I saw the people were scattering from you, and that you did not come within the appointed days, and the, that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked for the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. 
But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Then Samuel arose and went from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. Now Saul and his son Jonathan were the people who were present with them, and the people who were present with him, excuse me, were staying in Geba of Benjamin, while the Philistines camped at Michmash. And the raiders came from the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah, to the land of Shaul. And another company turned toward Beth Haran. And another company turned toward the border, which overlooks the valley of Zeboam, toward the wilderness. Now, no blacksmith could be found in the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines, each to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his hoe. The charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes, and to fix the hoes. So it came about on the day of battle that neither sword nor spear was found in the hands of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan. But they were found with Saul and his son Jonathan when the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Mizmash. May God add his blessing and understanding to reading his word. Let's pray. Lord, what we have not, we ask that you give us. What we know not, we ask that you teach us. May your words be the words of my mouth, Lord Jesus. And may lives be changed in our communities and lives. In your heavenly name we pray. Amen. All right, so we need to jump right in, and we need to look at this first verse, because I'll just ask, does anybody have anything different other than Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign in their Bible? We had a couple in the first service. The reason that that is, is um, in the Masoretic text that we have, uh, that number, 30 years, has actually been lost, right? So what, what it really says is Saul was years old when he began to reign, right? And he reigned for 42 years over Israel. So uh, the reason I tell you this is because you should, your, your numbers are probably italicized there in your Bible if you're reading along there. And that's what that italicis means. It means the translator had to go in and, and they had to put a number in there, right? They weren't just going to say Saul was years old, right? So they, they went and they looked and, and they examined. Uh, based on Acts 13.21, uh, Paul actually says that Saul ruled for 40 years, right? Uh, Josephus, the uh, uh, Hebrew scholar, right, the historian, uh, he also said that as 40 years. So when the translators went in, they said, well, okay, he was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 42 years, right? So that's where they get that number from. If you have a King James Version, yours says Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, blah, 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 right? So, which version is right? Well, uh, we don't know, because that number was lost. But what we do know is either way you say it, the message doesn't change, right? This isn't something that impacts our message. The reason I bring this out to you and point this out and spend so much time on this is because there are people out there that will tell you to question the Bible because there's errors in the Bible and, and whatnot. This is one of them that they will go to and they'll say, well, you don't even have the number there. But we know that this does not impact the message contained in this passage, right? So I like to think of it as Saul reigned one year and when he reigned two years over Israel, right? Because it gives us a picture that Saul didn't reign very long before he screwed up, right? And we're going to see that, 
that screw up today. We're going to see, uh, he says, now Saul chose uh, 3,000 men. He gave 2,000 of them, of them to himself, and 1,000 were sent with Jonathan. Another reason why they think he was 30 years old is because he had a son old enough to lead troops, right? Which, you know, us today would be like 15 years old leading a troop that came and cleaned the room. What are you talking about? Right? <laughs> Back then, 15 years, they, they were out there fighting. They were out there doing stuff. So um, they, he sent 1,000 men with Jonathan. And we see this interesting thing in verse 3. Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba. Geba is, is uh, right near Gibeah, uh, two very little towns. In fact, some people might say they, they can be used interchangeably. Um, but it was right there, and we've heard of this garrison before. Back in, in uh, 1 Samuel 10, uh, when uh, Samuel was telling Saul uh, about all the miracles that were going to happen to prove that he was going to be king, this was the garrison he was talking about there. And right away, I get kind of a little bit of an uncomfortable feeling, right? Why is Jonathan doing the smiting, right? Why is it Jonathan and not Saul? Saul is the king, so Saul should be doing this. And it raises a little bit of a red flag. And then the next verse doesn't help at all, because we see in the continuation of verse 3, then Saul blew the trumpet, so that all the Hebrews hear. And then verse 4, all, the, all Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, right? So you could attribute that maybe, you know, he's the king, so every good thing that happens is his fault, and every bad thing that happens is his fault. So he gets the credit there. But it certainly seems like, based on Saul's um, history that we're, we'll see as we go deeper into Samuel here, um, he was accepting the praise for what Jonathan did, all right? So Jonathan does this thing. He, he knocks out this little garrison here. And um, it's kind of like, have you ever, I, I love to watch this on YouTube, when people try to take out like a hornet's nest or a wasp nest or something like that, and they take the bag and they try and get it over it, close it up real quick and smash it up. And lots of times they fail, right? So they get it up there and then it's, the bag slips and then they go running away because the hornets just, you know, and then they go running away. Well, this is what happened here. Jonathan smote this itty-bitty garrison and now the Philistines are about to just Four out of the land, right? And we get this description here, uh, verse 5. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. So they just come pouring out of the woodwork and line up in the valley across from where Saul is. I like to, I like to look at this, though, because you look at this huge number of people, right? This mass of humanity that's come out against them. And the Bible doesn't shy away from that. The Bible makes sure to give it in great detail what they were fighting against. And the reason is because we know Israel is so small, right? But God can take a, a, a small number, a small faithful number, and destroy this huge mass of, of enemy, right? right? Verse 6, Israel saw they were in a strait. <laughs> I love that. Next time I'm in trouble, I'm going to say I'm in a straight. Right? They were hard-pressed, so they just scattered. Right? It's, it's like when you turn on the lights and all the cockroaches, right? They, they, they go into the caves, into the thickets, into the cliffs, into the cellars, into the pits. Right? And you can just see them kind of covering up because, I mean, it, it is pretty daunting to see that many people lined up against you. And it says some of them even went further. They crossed the Jordan and went out of the Promised Land. They ran away completely. Right? And there were still some that were following Saul, but they were trembling, right? They were trembling, they were scared. So much for that great king, right? Mm -hmm. 
You want a king like all the other nations that will go before us in battle. We contrast this, this reaction with 1 Samuel 7, when uh, Samuel had everybody gather at Mizpah, and he was offering sacrifices. And the Philistines heard about it, and so they came out against them. right? And what did the Israelites do then? They said, pray for us. Pray for us. And Samuel prayed, and God sent a big thunderstorm, right? Way bigger than this thing. Right? This was a real thunderstorm. And, and, and chased all the Philistines out. Remember, Samuel sets up that Ebenezer. He says, thus far God has helped us, right? So they could see it. They could be reminded that God was there to help them. Well, obviously, they couldn't see it from where they were there because they scattered. They scattered to, to caves and cellars, and they don't even wait for Samuel to get there, much less pray. And unfortunately, neither does Saul. We'll see in verse 8, he waits seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. And you're like, wait, when did Samuel start an appointed? I don't Go back in your Bible. Sam, uh, 1 Samuel 10, right? And uh, Samuel has just anointed Saul, and he says, these things are going to happen to prove to you that you are God's choice. And then you, you fast forward down all the way to, uh, uh, let's go to uh, verse 5. He says, after you come to the hill of God, where the Philistine garrison is. Right? That's what he's talking about there. And then uh, verse 8, he says, and you shall go down before me to Gilgal. And behold, I will come to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. Right? So there was a pattern. This is what he was supposed to do. He was supposed to go to Gilgal. Check. He did that. He was supposed to wait seven days. Check. He did that. And he was supposed to wait for Samuel to tell him what to do and offer the sacrifices. But that's not what Saul did, right? That's not what he did. Before you think that that, that Samuel is just on, on a power trip here, right? He's saying, um, you, you need to do what I say. You need to do what I say. Who was Samuel speaking for? Speaking for God. Yes. So, in essence, what Samuel was saying was, when Saul went to Gilgal and waited those seven days until Samuel told him what to do, he was saying, you need to go to Gilgal for seven days and wait until God tells you what you need to do. So we see here that, that Saul isn't attempting to usurp Samuel. He was saying he needed something done and God wasn't doing it, so he was going to do something. For uh, those of us with a, a few more rotations around the sun, how does that usually end up? Not good. Not good. <laughs> Not good. Let's see how it worked out for Saul. He, as soon as he finished, so he's, there's burnt offering and then there's peace offering, right? So the very first offering, he offers it up and there's Samuel. Right? Once you know, whoop, in pops Samuel. And he comes walking up, and we see, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Right? You ever busted your kid doing something they know they're not supposed to be doing? And you walk in, and they're like, hey, Dad, how are you? So good to see you, right? That, that's Saul, right? He knows he screwed up. And he's trying to go out there, and he's trying to cut it off the pass. He's trying to do a little damage control. Right? He goes out to meet him, and Samuel doesn't even give him a chance. He says, what have you done? All Saul says, well, all these terrible things happen, right? And this is a phrase that we should be familiar with, right? In Genesis, when Adam and Eve eat from the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And God comes down and he says, what have you done? Right? When Cain murders Abel, God comes down and he says, what have you done? Right? It's a 
terrifying phrase our culture likes to use in movies, right? You might see that, what have you done? Big explosions, now the monster's coming, you know, all that good stuff. What have you done? And Saul responds just like his predecessor Adam did, right? With excuses. First, he blames the people. The people were scattering. Next, he blames Samuel. You didn't show up. And third, he blames the Philistines. Right? And there was just nothing I could do. The people were scattering. You weren't even around. And, and, and he says, I love this verse. Let me turn to this. Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. Right? Oh, we didn't, we didn't ask the favor of the Lord. So let me get this straight. What you're going to do is you're going to violate what God said to do in asking for the favor of the Lord. Right? And we'll see more of that with Saul, right? When he goes into witch of Endor and uh, pulls up Samuel and, and it does all these things because God isn't talking to him and he wants answers. Right? He is seeking the favor of the Lord. And then he says, he says, so I forced myself. Just another thing I did. I forced myself. I didn't want to do it. I had to. I forced myself to do it. Just like a child justifying bad behavior. We see that Samuel is having none of this, right? He says, you've acted foolishly. Psalm 53, 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's what Saul was saying, right? There is no God. I will handle this. And we might say, geez, Samuel, you made one mistake. But don't forget that God sees the heart. When we were talking, when we will talk about David, and in the selection process, Samuel's sitting there, and David's brothers come in, and they're tall, dark, and handsome, right? He's like, oh, this guy. And God goes, no, 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 no. I don't look at the exterior. I look at the heart. And so we get a little picture here. In verse 14, uh, the Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. For one million Brentwood Bible Fellowship points, who is the man after God's own heart? David. David. I'll get a million points. Good job. You can redeem those at, I don't know, somewhere. <laughs> right? It's David. And so if we think about this, uh, if David's the man after God's own heart, then David's response would be the right response as opposed to Saul's. So when David was confronted by Nathan about Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, what did David say? What did David say? In 1 Samuel 12, uh, starting in verse 13, uh, Nathan tells him all that he's done. Then David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. Right? It's not, it was Bathsheba's fault. She's too beautiful. It's Uriah's fault. He's kind of a jerk. Right? It's, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. The heart of a person is revealed when they are confronted by their sin. Are they blaming everyone else? Is it everyone else's fault? Or do they, like David, say, I have sinned against the Lord? And based on Saul's lack of true repentance, God takes the kingdom away from Saul's family. And I can tell you that it was, it was based on that repentance, or a lack of repentance, excuse me, uh, because when you look at what Nathan tells David, Right? David says, uh, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. True repentance. True repentance. 
was what he was looking for, and Saul did not offer that. It was everybody else's fault. Samuel closes with a reminder of what Saul uh, did not do, and, and he's, he nails him here. He says, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God. God would have established your kingdom. Now he's not going to. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Bam, bam, bam. And I'm pretty sure that Samuel uh, never learned the Oreo cookie approach to constructive criticism, right? You're supposed to give them something good, tell them the bad thing, and then cushion it with something good, right? Samuel just smacks him with the frosting, right? Smacks him with the frosting. And then Samuel does the worst thing he could ever do. He arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. He leaves. Can you imagine being Saul? You're there. You're surrounded. The one guy that can speak for God has just gotten up and left after calling you foolish. This is a dark, dark time for Saul. So what does Saul do? He counts how many people are with him. You remember he had 2,000. Jonathan had 1,000. Add those together. You don't have to be a mathematician to get 3,000, right? And he looks at this and he says, ooh, 600 men. Quite a lot of attrition there, right? 2,400 men have run away. And it's just Saul, Jonathan, and 600 men. They're sitting there across the valley and they're looking out at the sea of humanity and a horn blows. And one company goes up, it goes to the north. And one company comes down and it goes to the south. And one company comes right up at him. Blocks every chance of anyone getting to them. They're on their own. Those 602 people are on their own. They're isolated. They're surrounded. And if that wasn't bad enough, if that wasn't bad enough, every time they look over, they see like a glint of, of sunshine off of metal. Right? And they look at that, and they know what those are. Those are swords. But we read in, in verse 19, they couldn't even have blacksmiths in Israel. They had to go to the Philistines to get their, their farm tools sharpened. So they didn't even have swords. Only Jonathan and David did. So they would have been armed with, like, clubs, sticks. So you're going to go with clubs and sticks against a sea of humanity armed with swords and shields that are probably pretty sharp. Suddenly, like one of those Lord of the Rings movies, right? A horn blows, and all of a sudden, here come the Philistines. And they're marching off. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. And that's where we leave off today. It's a bit of a letdown, if you ask me. In my opinion, the pastor here has a habit of leaving people on a cliff. I'll give you a different military story. Hopefully it'll make up for the the, the, my lack of continuing to chapter 14. When I was in the Army, we were stationed at Fort Stewart, Georgia. And I was, I was on a tank, an M1A1 tank. And that tank, we would take out into the field, and uh, we'd get all muddy and everything, and we'd bring it back. And before we could take it back to the motor pool, we had to clean it. So they had a tank wash, right? It's like a car wash on steroids. And there was a big, like, pond that you would drive your tank into. And then on either side, there were big, huge water cannons, like what you see in, like, a water park, right? And people would spray the mud off the side of the tank and everything. But there was one rule. 
They had signs everywhere about it. They briefed you on it before you went into that little pond. There was a little hole on the side of the tank. If you look at the tank, it was on this side about midway back. That was where all the air that fed the turbine engines for that tank went. Right? It all went in there. And they said, do not spray the hose in that hole. Don't do it. Okay. So we drive our tank through, we get it all cleaned up, we're pulled up, we're you know, putting a little wax on it over here. And uh, behind us, uh, we didn't literally wax the tanks, that, that was a joke. Uh, <laughs> behind us, I hear boom! And I turn around, there's a huge cloud of smoke. One of the privates that was on that water cannon, brand new, he'd been briefed, but he saw mud around that hole. And he said, oh, I'm gonna take care of that. I wanna get that cleaned off, because we have to get it clean before we can go home, right? And he shot one of those high pressure water cannons right into that hole. And that multi-million dollar tank, dead in the water. Dead in the water. He had good intentions, right? He wanted to get the mud off the tank. That's what we were supposed to be doing. But he ruined the multi-million dollar tank with a water hose. Kind of ironic if you think about it. He had good intentions. And so did Saul for that matter. He had good intentions, right? He wanted to be fighting the Philistines. But as in Saul's case, when we say, I know God said, but we've entered dangerous waters. No matter if our intentions are good or not. Because apart from God's will, no intention is good. No matter what we think the situation looks like, it doesn't matter if it's not God's will. It's not good. So let's let's break that down a little bit more into three quick categories. I want to look at three categories of intentionality. Walk, worship, and world. Okay, we're going to look at these in light of what God says. And, and we, we want to avoid ever hearing the words, what have you done? So we'll start on, on the smaller personal scale. We'll work to the church, and then we'll go to the world. And so first, what should our intentions look like in our walk, in our day-to-day -day walk with Christ, how he commands us to live, what are we intending to do? Next, what should our intentions look like in corporate worship? Now, I could have said, what are, what are our intentions look like in our church? But church begins with a C, and I needed something that began with a W, so I called it worship, right? Our corporate worship. Our church, though, that's what it means. Uh, what do we do here at church? What are our intentions here? And not just Sunday morning, but I'm talking about Tuesday night Bible study. I'm talking about Thursday night youth group, uh, Saturday morning men's Bible study, trunk or treat. What is our intention? And then finally we'll move on to the larger picture. What should our intentions look like in the world? That is to say, as we look at the world around us, uh, what should our intentions be towards it? All right? Walk, worship, world. So what should our intentions look like in our walk? When we look at our passage today, it's, it's pretty easy to see the failure of Saul's personal walk with God. Right? The failure to act with the garrison of Gibeah. He proclaimed that he defeated the garrison. He, his failure to wait on Samuel, which was really a failure to wait on God. And finally, his failure of repentance. Right? Everybody else was the problem. When we look at those failures as a sort of package, we begin to see a pattern. It's a, a pattern of failure in the heart. He was God's anointed, 
But in back of everything, was he really trusting that God was going to live up to what he had promised Saul through Samuel? And it's, it's kind of hard to come down on this guy from a, from a human perspective. Because humanly, he was facing what the world would call an unwinnable battle. 600 dudes versus the ocean, right? It's not, it's not going to work. But I have to say, as I was, I was preparing this sermon, I couldn't wait to get to the next chapter. I couldn't wait to get to chapter 14. Because we see what Saul should have been like in his son Jonathan. And we get a little taste of that today with the, the taken out of the garrison. But well, one of the most hardcore moments in the Bible is in chapter 14. I don't want to spoil it. We'll, we'll get to it next week. But I, I can tell you, I was reading it, and I was like, oh, I'm going to be like Jonathan. I was reading chapter 14, and I was just like, yeah, this guy's a beast. But once I settled down, and I looked at more than what Jonathan was doing, and I really started to look at what he was saying. I saw a faith in God that was so amazing Amen. that I was truly humbled. Because I look around my life and I ask myself, am I really trusting God's provision to do the things that he says he will do in my walk? I mean, we're promised things as Christians eternally, namely heaven. But Jesus also told us that the Father knows when a sparrow falls from the sky. And are we not more important than a sparrow? Right. So as I go through my life here on earth, am I trusting that choosing to do what God says I should do as a Christian is really the right thing for the moment? Am I trusting God in my business decisions, in the way I treat others, the way I lead as a father and a husband in my home, despite the circumstances? Matthew 19, 16 uh, a man comes to Jesus, and he says, Lord, I've kept all the commandments since my earliest age. What more must I do to be saved? Right? He, was, he was speaking from an external standpoint, but Jesus just cuts right to the heart. And he tells him to sell all of his possessions and give all his money to the poor. It's not because Jesus was communist. It's okay to have things, right? But he could tell that there was an area in that young man's life that he did not fully trust to let God rule over. Because that's what sin boils down to. When we sin, just like when Saul offered the sacrifices himself, we're saying that we think we have a better understanding of the situation, of our life, and what needs to be done than God. If I steal, I'm not trusting God to provide what I need monetarily. If I lust, it's because I don't trust God to provide for my physical needs. If I lie, it's because I don't trust God enough to make the truth known and deal with the ramifications. If I can't find time in my day to read my Bible, it's because I think that my priorities are much more important than what God has said to do. We can look at Saul and say, in light of the circumstances, his actions seem wise and prudent. But in light of the promise of God, it was the most foolish thing he could have done. And we would be right. We would be right. But we need to make sure that when we're done talking about Saul, we turn that lens and we point it at ourselves, too. Which can be really hard to do. But just imagine if your life was written in the number one best-selling book of all time, 
for everyone to read and pick apart. What would they say about you? What would they say about me? The interesting thing, and I would argue crucial for our church, is that aligning our attention, intentions with God's intentions won't just improve our walk with Christ. It will also affect our church. Because when we make a holy walk with Christ our intention, when we choose to do what God says in every situation, it bleeds over into our church. Which leads us to our second point. What should our intentions look like in corporate worship? What should our intentions be when we gather together as a church? Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 commands us. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. When we come together, whether in worship or in some other fashion as our church, are we holding fast to that confession of hope without wavering? Are we encouraging one another in our walk with Christ? Are we stimulating one another to good works? Are we, are we uh, simply giving it face service? Hey, Brandon, how are you doing? Don't look there, but hey, Brandon. You know? I, am I going deeper? Am I saying, Brandon, how was your walk with Christ this week? Did you read anything in the Bible interesting this week that you want to talk about? And if that seems awkward to you, it should be. Right? That's what we should be doing. We should be stimulating one another to love and to good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together. That's why it's, it's so important that we meet together, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, if you're in youth group here, you know what that means, the day drawing near, right? Maybe you don't know what that means. Otherwise, the day drawing near is the day of the Lord. Right? When that trumpet's going to blast and Christians are going to be yanked out of this world. In the twinkling of an eye, we'll be transformed. We'll be with Christ in heaven. Right? Are we remembering that? Are we encouraging each other in that? Are we, are we longing for that day? Or do we say, ah, you know. I have a few things I want to finish here on earth before I go to perfection. Right? Are we encouraging one another? As we meet together, are we loving one another? And if we're encouraging one another in love as a church, and if we're looking forward to that hope, that, that, that day of the Lord, those, those intentions that we do here will bleed over into the world. Right? Would our what are our intentions in the world? That's such a first world thing to say that our world is falling apart. Right? If we went to Iran, or Syria, or Africa, or even Mexico, we would see a world that has never known the ease of life or the, the prosperity that we have here in America, right? But we don't live in those places, so it's, it's easy for us to look around our country and, and be discouraged or disgruntled or even fearful. But in doing so, in worrying about things that are, for the most part, out of our control, are we not committing the same sin that Saul did. We're not surrounded by thousands of bloodthirsty Philistines. 
But we are surrounded by a culture in judgment. A culture that is openly against the things of God. That pridefully flaunts sin and gives hearty approval to it. To the point where their minds are, are darkened. And logical, clear thinking is becoming more and more rare. Shouting has replaced civil discourse. The religion of self has replaced that of godly duty in one another. So what is to be done? Should we, like David, in Psalm 59, 13, pray that God destroys our enemies in wrath and destroy them that they may be no more? That's one way to do it. But who's our enemy? Is it gay people? Is it people having sex outside of marriage? Is it Hollywood? Is it adulterers? Are people that covet their neighbor's stuff? Are people that drink too much? Are people that trick people out of their money? Or is it people that hate other people? For those of you that got that, I was paraphrasing 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed. Amen. But you were sanctified. Amen. But you were justified. Yes, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Amen. Okay? So we don't get to hate anyone. All right? And we should be seeking to save others out of sinful lifestyles Amen. since we were saved out of sinful lifestyles. But what does that look like? In this world that grows increasingly hostile towards Christian values and the word of God, what are we to do? In a letter to a brand new pastor named Timothy, Paul laid out a plan for Timothy on how to address a sinful world bent on destroying Christianity. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 1, he says, First of all, then I urge you that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that's presidents, vice presidents, governors, mayors, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That is good and acceptable in the sight of our God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath or dissension. And he prayed. And this isn't a fatalistic, well, what will be, will be, so I guess I'll just pray. We're still to reach the lost. Amen. We're still called to speak truth into situations where truth is not being respected. We're still called to confront sin, but we are to bathe it in prayer Amen. and in love. As Paul says in a different letter, one of the Corinthians, he says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, 
I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Brothers and sisters, it is so easy to look at this world around us and get angry. To look at what is happening in our schools and to our institutions and want to shout and want to do something because our country is surrounded. Our path has been blocked and our country is slipping away from us. And if God isn't going to act, we had better do something before it completely slips away. But friends, our God has acted. And all authority has been given to him on heaven and on earth. And he's told us what to do. He's given us our orders, and he expects us to follow them. Matthew, he says, go ye therefore and make disciples of all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of this age. If you truly want to do something, you wait on the Lord. You focus all your personal intentions on what God says is right in your personal walk. You encourage one another in love in our corporate worship. You pray and you take Jesus' truth, his gospel, into the world. And in your walk, your worship, in your world, you wait on the Lord. If you find yourself here today and you've heard that list of sins I listed off earlier and you realize that, that you have sinned but you have never accepted the grace freely given by Jesus Christ who was and is both fully man and fully God who died, was buried and raised to life on the third day I want you to realize two things first, we have all sinned and fallen short of the holiness of God you aren't in the building with a bunch of perfect people who have never done anything wrong pastor included. But you are in a church full of people that have found forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Amen. He died on the cross for your sins and for mine. And he did that to give you access to a pure and perfect grace. Grace which is freely given to anyone who would accept it. If you are here and you want that grace, you want to start your walk with Jesus today. I'll stay up here for a little while while we sing this last song. Come down, I'd love to share Jesus with you. If you want to come down while we're singing and, and you just want to spend some time praying, feel free. If you want me to pray with you, just grab me, I'll pray with you. I'd love to. This week as we go, focus your intentions in your walk, in your worship, and in your world. And wait on the Lord. Lord, we thank you for the truth that is contained in your word. We thank you that the people in there are not perfect, just like we are not perfect. We thank you for the hope that we have, that glorious hope of the day of the Lord, where that trumpet will blow and we will be out of this place. Sin will, will slide off of us like dirty clothes. And Lord, we'll be in your presence. Oh, Jesus, come quick. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please go ahead and stand for the last song.